0: Well, welcome again, uh, especially if you're visiting with us. We're really glad that you're here. We are in a transition point when it comes to our sermons. We uh, if you'll recall and just kind of a quick review, you know, we started March of 20. We were looking at Ephesians. We went all the way through Ephesians, wrapped that up in July of last year. Uh, and then in August, we began looking at the book of Genesis. We made it through the first 11 chapters of Genesis And then in Advent, began John's gospel and went through John's gospel in the spring, making it to the halfway point of John's gospel. So we're going to come back to John's gospel, but not until uh, the start of 21. What we're going to do this fall is look at the life of Abraham, picking up right where we left off uh, in Genesis chapter 11. So we're going to give a, a, a consideration of the life of Abraham. I'm excited about it. The month of July, I, I didn't preach. You'll remember we had a number of guest preachers, and um, that was, it was one. I, it was great for me. I thoroughly enjoyed just sitting and listening and receiving uh, God's word. And so, But now I'm excited to be back preaching. Um, let me pray before we get into this text this morning, asking for God's help. Let's pray together. Our Father, we again come to you in prayer. And it's good for us to do such because we need you. We need your help. We need your spirit. The same spirit who is actively involved in the creation of the world. We need to be involved in the recreation of us this morning. Because if your spirit doesn't show up, nothing really happens. And so we ask for it. I pray that you would somehow speak through me. and Penetrate the hearts of those here. We, we believe there is power in your word. And so we ask that you would unleash it this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, in 1986, uh, a young boy named Saru, an Indian boy, begged his older brother, Guru, to take him to the train station so that they could collect coal. You see, he was, they were an Indian family raised by their single mother. These two boys, these two brothers. Saru was only five years old and he wanted to go with his big brother to go to the train station to collect coal, like leftover coal. They would collect it, take it back to town, and sell it to try to help support the family. And it was late, and Gudu, his older brother, was reluctant to let Saru go, but he he conceded. And so Saru and Gudu take what was a fairly long journey for a couple of young boys to the train station. And Saru, it's middle of the night, he's exhausted by the journey. And so he sits on one of the train station benches and falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he can't find his older brother. So he begins to search kind of frantically, trying to find him. He makes his way onto one of the passenger trains. He's just sitting at the station and he gets on it, yelling for Gudu. Where's Gudu, his brother? He can't find him. The train's completely empty. And he eventually sits down on one of the seats on the train and falls asleep again. And when he wakes up, His life is forever changed because now that train is hauling across Asia, across India. There's nobody on it. It's just Saru. And one day passes. Another day passes. The train's still moving. And he doesn't. There's nobody that he can find. And finally it stops. And when little five-year-old Saru gets off the train, he's in another world. And the people speak a different language. He's in Calcutta this major urban center. And now this little five-year-old boy is left to fend for himself on the streets of Calcutta, finding food, dodging child predators. He eventually makes his way into an orphanage where he's adopted by an Australian family. And they give him all the the blessings that a, a child would want. They love him. He's educated. They send him to college. But still, he can't shake these longings, this sense of his desire for his, for his biological mom, his brother, his home. And so along comes this technology. This is the, early, the mid-2000s called Google Earth, where you can find satellite footage of the whole world. And so Saru, uh, who's now he's in college... He's actually at a dinner party and he smells this smell that immediately takes him back to his child. It's an Indian cuisine that takes him back to his home. And he's thinking, I've I've got to find mom and home. And and remember, he's five years old. He's working with bits and pieces of memory. And so he begins at Calcutta, looking at the satellite imaging and works his way back and and, and eventually finds what he believes to be his home. Because there's a water tower there and a train station, everything looks right. From the satellite footage and so he travels and sure enough he hits the streets and this is this is home this is where his mom is and so he's making his way through the alleys and finally after asking some some neighbors finds where his mom is living at the time and they lovingly embrace they're sobbing his mom says i always knew that she would return it's this moving story I first heard about it in a 60 Minutes interview, but they, they turned it into a movie not too long ago. And, I, you know, it's, it's moving because it's, it's incredible to think about the loss that this little five-year-old boy experienced. The loss of his home. The loss of his mother. The difficulty of trying to survive on the streets. And then being placed in this orphanage. And then it's, it's moving to see the warmth and love of this Australian family that bring him in and take care of him. And I think it's insightful to see that despite all the love he was shown by this adopted family, he still has a desire to, to find home, to find his biological mother. And I think one of the reasons this story resonates so deeply with us is because, in a sense, it's our story. We're adrift. We're homeless. We have these distant memories of a, of a better place, of a better way. We're aliens in, a, in, in this world. And that sense of dislocation and unsettledness haunts us. In fact, uh, every language has a word for it. In Welsh, it's herith. In German, it's Heimweh; In Italian, it's manca- mancanza di casa. The Greeks called it nostalgia, right? The sense of homesickness. And a lot of times we think, okay... I've got this sense of homesickness, what I need, the sense of unsettledness, the sense of dislocation. Maybe, just maybe, if we get a new home, then we could solve that problem. Or maybe if we could just move back to the old, the the town where we grew up or the town where we went to college, we have all these wonderful memories and we try all of these things to deal with this sense of dislocation and we find that none of it scratches the itch that we have. C.S. Lewis, you know, he said if, if, you know, when baby ducklings are born, they have this desire for, for water and there's water available to them. When, when a baby is born, a baby has a desire for milk. And guess what? There's milk available to them. And Lewis says, look, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So this sense of dislocation and unsettledness is actually spiritual in nature. And the scriptures, the Bible gives us an account of it because it tells us the story of how we came to be, that God created us to live in a garden, but most importantly, to have fellowship with him, to live in him, to live with him, with God. And as you will recall, Adam and Eve rebelled from God. And as a result, felt they, were, they were literally banished from their home with God in the garden. There were cherubim sent to protect them from re-entry. And they're left to this wild, fallen world. And there's all sorts of examples that we have in those early chapters of Genesis as uh, efforts to try to reestablish some footing in this fallen world. And one of those big efforts, the, the previous passage, previous to what we just read, the one we left off on, is the Tower of Babel. Where humanity says, let's, let's build a home. Let's build a tower up to the heavens that can provide us with security. And give us a name. Right? And help us reach up to the divine. And God says, no, that's not the solution. And in this very next passage, right? Because there's a genealogy. And then God calls Abram. And what he's doing is saying, Babel's not the way it's going to work. It's going to, it's my plan. To reunite a people to myself and bring them home, is going to begin with, it's going to be by my design. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, this, this call of Abram, which kickstarts God's plan. In fact, you can look at Genesis 1 through 11 as the problem, and Genesis chapter 12, where we're beginning right today, all the way through Revelation as the solution. And God is still working out the solution as I speak. His purposes are being worked out and they will be finally culminated when Christ returns to bring heaven down to earth. Okay, but it begins here. It begins here. We get some insight into this plan in this passage. This is God's plan to bring us home. And we're going to consider three things this morning. The man, the mission and the promises. So the man, the mission and the promises. First, the man. Uh, you'll remember Genesis chapter three, verse 15 is the first gospel. Remember when God is cursing the serpent and he says that out of the line of Eve will come a son that will crush the head of the serpent. And so much of the energy of Genesis is trying to sift through whose whose line is it going to be? Through? Is it going to be through Cain. Is it going to be through Abel, Lamech, Seth, Noah? It's sifting, trying to figure out who this line. And we get a big clue in this passage. God is going to work out his salvific purposes through this man who we're introduced to right here, Abram. So let's let's look more closely at who Abram is. The first thing I want you to notice about Abram is that he's a pagan. He's a pagan. Uh, Verse 31. We see that he's from Ur and Harah. Now, these are hubs for the worship of the moon god. And uh, so he comes from a place where moon god worship is prevalent. But there's even more. Look at verse 29. His wife is Sarai. And her name, she's named after the moon god's wife. And Milcah, his niece, is named after the moon god's daughter. And Abram's father is Terah, which is, is, comes from the Hebrew word, root, For moon. And so every indication, both the names of his family, the location that he comes from, every indication is that Abram is a devoted, devout, moon worshiper. And we think, this is who God is choosing? But it gets even worse. Look at verse 30. It says, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And I don't know, I know that we have folks in our midst that have struggled or are even struggling with infertility. It's a difficult struggle. It was especially difficult in this age where your children uh, in an agrarian world society, your children were your labor force, your military force, your home security plan, your 401k, Right. This is a this line right here that Sarai was barren. There is so much emotional difficulty and tears in the life of Abram and Sarai in that verse. So much bound up in that. And this is particularly problematic because as we're going to see in in just a moment, what does God promise Abram? A great nation, which implies many descendants. You can't create a nation if you don't have a child at least and preferably many children to have many grandchildren and so on and so you look on the surface at what God is doing and you think this is not promising that the promise of salvation and a way home is is going to happen through this man a pagan worshiper Who cannot have, who's unable to have children? It's not promising at all. It's as though the the team is down by, you know, down by a touchdown. And there's two seconds left on the clock. And the the quarterback, the starting quarterback has just gone, has just gone down. And so the coach sends an armless quarterback in to take the snap. Like it's, this is not promising. This is who God has, has chosen. Okay, now that's the first point, The man second point is the mission so let's let's take a look at that god then speaks to abram in verse one of chapter 12 And what does he say look at verse one chapter 12 he says go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that i will show you go that's in a word that's what god is calling abram to do to go and that is a disruptive imperative to go it would be much easier to stay to remain settled. But God is saying, go. And, it, and actually, in fact, the people at Babel, do you remember what they do? They stay. They say, come, let's settle here and build a temple, a tower to the heavens. They stay. And God is giving Abram the very opposite instruction. Go. And it gets difficult with each little phrase that follows. Because Abram says, go from your country. Right? Think about it. Leaving your country? Have you ever uh, left um, your country? Have you ever left America? It's difficult, right? You leave the food that you're familiar with, the culture that you're familiar with, all of the things that are familiar to you. And Abram's called to do that. And then getting closer to home, he's commanded to leave his kin. It says, go from your kindred. And then even more close to home, he says, leave your father's house. Each each one of these commands to go to leave your country, your kindred, your your father's house. They each strike Abram. They're like arrows hitting Abram in the heart, each with greater intensity. Now, you might think, well, this is big. You know, God's asking a lot of Abraham. And here's the calculus. Big sacrifice means big payoff, right? So what's God going to do? Where's God going to take him? Look at what he says. Verse one again. Go to the land. I will show you. I will show you. He doesn't even disclose where he's supposed to go. Just leave and I'll uh, I'll tell you later where you're going to go. That's this is an enormous risk for Abram and his family and his his people, his people, his people enormous risk there is an enormous uncomfortable gap between abram's present moment right here at the call and the future promise of god right where is god going to take it and you know i wonder have you felt the gap between your present moment and a future promise of god god has has promised abundant life and yet were struggling to, to, to keep the job and, and now financially your life is, is, feels like it's in disarray, you can't even pay your, your utility bills and things so it's a gap right, between your present moment and the promise of abundant life or God has promised to work all things for good and yet you've just lost a, a, a loved one due to some, an accident that happened How, there's a gap right, between your present moment and In the future promise of God that he's going to work all things for good. It's it's an enormous chasm between the two. And you're standing in that gap. And it feels as though that gap is too great for any bridge to cover. And this is what it means to walk by faith. Faith is the bridge that covers the gap between our present moment and the future promises of God. Faith is the bridge. Have you ever done the trust fall? Where you, We've talked about this before. You fall off the ledge and you got people down at the bottom that are there. They're, the promise, what's the promise? We will catch you. But there's, there's a one to two seconds where you are, your present moment, there's a gap between your present moment and the promise, right? And that's the moment where you're flying through the air. And it's, it's, a, it's a frightening time, isn't it? Are they going to catch me? Are they not going to catch? Is the promise going to hold? For those of us walking in Christ, this is this is our life right here. Just flying through air. We stand between uh, between the promise of God. It has they haven't been realized yet. They're future promises. And this is what it means to walk by faith. And notice, too, uh, that God is not buttering Abram up. He's not saying Abram. You this is. I'm about to make you famous, Abram. You you are going to be the father of the world's three greatest religions. They're gonna write songs about you. Little kids are gonna sing about you in Sunday school. The whole world is gonna know who you are. You're gonna be a big deal. That's not what God is doing. Not at all. He's saying Go to the land that I will show you, because he's not God's not he's not a slick salesman sort of, you know, trying to put this thing in the most appealing terms for Abram. You know, Jesus does, does something similar. Remember what he tells the rich young ruler? Go the, the man who has all the possessions, go sell everything that you have and come follow me. Right, and I think this is encouraging for us as we think about evangelism. As we think about sharing God, a lot of times we put pressure on ourselves to think that we have to like butter people up and share Christ and kind of do God's PR work for him. And make sure that we kind of don't kind of knock off the rough edges of the of the gospel so that somebody won't reject it outright. And no, that's not the case. We simply proclaim, proclaim Christ. And that's what God is doing here. He's saying, go He's not telling Abraham every step of the way where he's going to take him, how he's going to get there. And the reason we approach evangelism in, the, in this way is because the power is in the message of the gospel. What does Paul say in Romans? That the gospel is the power of God. That we don't have, we just declare the message. Because it, it doesn't rely on our power. It, the message itself crackles with the power of God. Now, having said that, Abram does receive some promises in these verses. And that's our third and final point. Verse one, there is the promise of land. It's not specified. It's undisclosed, but it is land, this promise. So that's the first thing that God mentions. The second thing is that he will make, this is verse two, I will make of you a great nation. And then I will bless you, Make your name great so that you will be a blessing to all. And then he says a blessing to all nations. Now, this promise of great nation is the most unlikely of all. As we mentioned earlier, this one is kind of the elephant in Abram's tent, right? Because how can he become a great nation if there is no child? And the biggest conflict, the biggest tension in the whole Abraham story as we're going to see this fall is the question of how Abram will have a child an heir, a nation builder, right? So that's the big challenge. But then there's also the the blessings that come. And the word blessing here shows up in these three verses more than it does in the first 11 chapters combined. So God is up to something big in these verses and in this call. Now, I want to ask you, given the enormity of, Of the promises of God, given that the whole story of salvation begins right here in Genesis chapter 12 with God's call of Abram, what do you make of the glaring inadequacies of Abram for the task? What do we make of that? You see, what God is demonstrating, this is really important the promises of God. Hinge upon the supernatural power of God. That the same God who created the world ex nihilo out of nothing can create a people out of the the void of Sarai's womb. That he can do that and he will do that and he delights in doing that because it demonstrates his power and his faithfulness to the promises of God. That's what God is demonstrating. These promises don't depend upon human faithfulness to God, but on God's faithfulness to humanity. And it's good news. It's good. Contrast that with Babel, where the people come together. They take human might, human ingenuity, human technology, and they build their tower to the heavens. And God is saying, look, I'm going to give you these things. He's saying he's going to give them the exact same things that the people at Babel wanted. A name, security, blessings, land. I'm going to give you these these things, but they are going to come by my design and my directive and my power. And I'll even take the guy that nobody else would choose for the job, right? The armless quarterback. I'm going to take him and I'm going to use him to demonstrate that. That's why I'm choosing him. That these promises rise and fall on my power, my grace, and my faithfulness to them. And it all begins with the command to go. For Abram to go. Now, these promises of God still depend upon him, upon his faithfulness. Do you believe that? I know that, I know that every, we're in church. Right? I mean, of course you believe that. You're nodding your head. I see that. But I mean, functionally, do you believe that God's promises depend upon God's faithfulness and not your faithfulness? Let me ask you this. Is your inner life, your, your, your heart, your mind, is it marked by peace and joy all the time? Or, or, or sometimes, maybe the majority of the time, do you have anxiety and fear in your heart? Anxiety and fear are fruits of unbelief, right? And if you don't believe in God, anxiety and fear, or if you're not relying on God, anxiety and fear is a perfectly fitting response. Because life outside of God is, there's there's things to be afraid of. But in God, if, if if we're operating out of belief in God and his faithfulness to his promises to us in Christ, peace and joy is the result. It's peace and joy that marks our hearts. Well, Abraham is commanded to leave home, his place in Ur and Haral, to go find a home. And one of the questions that I want to ask for you this morning is what would it mean for you to go, to leave? Now, I'm not saying I'm not saying like leave right now. I'm not saying I'm not even saying move, although that that, that could be maybe God's calling it to move. Um, I'm not saying that. Have you, let me ask you this. Maybe you've, uh, you feel the difficulty of life and you have these sins that you sort of made a home out of. That when the storms of life come, you, you, you have a little place you go to. Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's pornographic use. It's somewhere you go to have like a little, dwell, a little sanctuary to help deal with the storms of life. God is saying, go, like, leave that. Those are false securities, false homes. Maybe in your marriage, you've, there's broken spots in your marriage, but you've made sort of a silent pact with your spouse to say, we will not go there because to go there means to raise up a whole heap of, of it's a mess. We don't even want to get into that. So there's almost like a little a sanctuary, a little layer of protection that comes from that silent pact that keeps you from dealing with the issues that need to be dealt with. God is saying, go. There's risk. There's risk involved. But God will carry you. Promise, His, His promise is healing. He will carry you through that. Or maybe your, your kids, uh, you, it, 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 you got kids and it's, it's, it's challenging and you maintain Um, a little buffer you're there physically but you're not present you're aloof and you've got little airpods in or you're scrolling through this thing and you're you've created a little buffer a little sanctuary to protect you from the from the difficulty of child rearing god is saying go like leave that go and his promise is that he will carry you through all of those journeys Now, the the next question we got to ask, though, is how do you get the resources to go and enter into a loving fellowship with God? How do you do that? I mean, by the way, that's where the Bible says this sense of homesickness and dislocation comes is the fact that we've been removed from God's presence. How do you find home? How did Saru find home? Remember what he did? He uh, used his wit, his intelligence, he used technology, Google Earth, to find his home, and he succeeded. But let me suggest to you, that's not what the scriptures tell us when it comes to finding God or locating him. The scriptures say we can't do it on our own. We can't use Google Earth or Google Heaven to find our way back to God. That he has, That's the Babel approach, right? Build up to heaven. No, he has to come down. And that's precisely... What he has done. He, Jesus left his heavenly home, his perfect fellowship, we might say his kin, his father's house, and he left and he came down to earth and he became a wanderer. He had no home. Remember what he said? Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He became homeless. And marched all the way towards Calvary, where he died upon a cross to forgive us our sins and provide a way back home for us. He became homeless so that we could find a home in Christ, in God. And that's the resolution. Not just that, but you know what he's doing right now? In heaven. remember what he said? I'm preparing a room for you, my people, rooms in my father's house. That's the resolution. To the homesickness that we feel and notice that all of it is not dependent on us at all that it's all emerges god calls abraham god sends christ who comes to earth for us and christ goes up and who does he send to help make all these things known to us the holy spirit comes to us and comes into us and revives us and even get this is even get this right In Revelation, what happens at the very end? What does John see in the book of Revelation? He sees heaven coming down to earth. It's not earth coming up. In every instance, all of God's work to acquire a home begins with God and is completed by God and his purposes. This is how we find our rest. It's not us building a little self uh, project of of salvation on our in our own power, but God coming down to us. And the call of Abram that we see right here in these few verses, uh, it blossoms into the call of Christ where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. We are homeless apart from God. And to kind of riff off of a, a St. Augustine. Our hearts are homeless until they find a home in Christ, in God. May we do that. Let's pray. Our Father, you have uh, made a way for us to find fellowship with you. It's striking that the cherubim that guarded the entrance to the temple were stitched onto the veil. And as Christ breathed his last, last, that, that veil curtain ripped apart and fell, making a way back to you, back into your sanctuary, back into loving fellowship with you. Help us to believe that until our faith becomes sight. We need your spirit to impress it upon our hearts, and we pray that you would. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.